Welcome back to Dystopia and Catastrophe. I am Roman. Bonus material for this podcast available over on Patreon. You can also leave comments and questions there, or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let me know what you think about the material that we're covering. In this episode, we're going to cover chapters 11 and 12 from one second after and close this thing out and talk about what can happen and how likely is this to happen to the actual United States of America. And this is a, a especially chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a very dark chapter in this story uh, after the, uh, the attack as told on the United States of America in this book. And this brings us to day number 131. I mean, think about that. 131. That's not a lot of days into this. And what do we got going on? Of course, our protagonist, John, he's still in charge. We saw that. He's, uh, he's in charge because, you know, most of the other uh, leadership is dead. And you can kind of picture, I mean, after the descriptions of what happens, I mean, there's been a war fought in the town, in and around the town, and the, everything's just been falling apart for 131 days. I mean, imagine what your town would look like after 131 days of this particular nightmare in a, in a, in a society where bullets are now the currency of choice. I mean, that's the, uh, the ultimate uh, device of being able to barter or trade things of that nature. That's a, that's a very different world. And as far as how many people are dead, like from that battle, it turns out that there's about 700 people dead, roughly the same number wounded. And this was in a town of just over 10,000 people. And that's just this battle that took place. Not counting all the other people who've died from a multitude of other causes, they start talking about 3,000 graves up at the golf course, and a plague rolling through the town, disease rolling through the town. Uh, at this point, on day number 131, only about 40% of the community survives. You know, they, they give you some numbers in the chapter. When you read over that, and when you read over what's going on to these with these people, it's just the, uh, the slow dying of an entire town. And just as there's a little bit of hope, perhaps, that maybe John's youngest daughter who suffers from diabetes, might be able to be saved. That hope is kind of closed shut. He ends up getting into it with a doctor the next town over. That uh, I believe this is out by Asheville. There's a, there's a hospital out there that he uh, actually gets a hold of, and there's possibility that maybe some medication might be available. But then, you know, the door finally closes. The last little bit of hope, the last little bit of uh, possibility that he might be able to save his daughter just finally closes shut forever. And when he's talking to this doctor on the phone, the doctor says something really stupid. And the doctor's, the doctor's like, you know, hey, you know, you can come over here and try to take the, uh, the medication if you want to, but probably not going to work out well for you. People are going to get killed if you try to do that, because John basically threatens to basically storm the place. Now, it's, a kind of a bl- it's kind of an empty threat. He doesn't really mean to do it. He's just pissed. He's angry because he's watching his kid die. And the doctor on the other end of the line starts saying, you know, well, he's sorry about everything that's going on. And he's even sorry for the people who are responsible for not preventing this. The people who could have stopped it. I mean, think the politicians and the top military folks, the top brass in the military who could have stopped it. he He even feels sorry for them, for the responsibility that they now have to carry. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking to myself, does anybody else feel sorry for these people? Because I don't. I mean, in this situation, I would probably be calling for a trial and a firing squad. I wouldn't feel sorry for him. I don't know who would feel sorry for those people in this situation. I would have a trial for all manner of things, ranging from dereliction of duty all the way up to treason, and then a firing squad if they're found guilty. But there, there wouldn't be any feeling sorry for those people on my end of things. No. No way. I don't know who would say something stupid like that. 
I feel sorry for the victims. That would be the 330 million Americans. I'd feel sorry for them, but I wouldn't feel sorry for the people responsible for it at the, uh, at the top. And I don't know that John would feel sorry for him either, to be honest with you, as he slowly watches his daughter die. And she does. And that last line in this chapter, chapter 11, is just a gut-wrenching line, just that final line in the chapter. I mean, unless you're just a sociopath, that is just a brutal, brutally difficult line to read. And that's why I don't feel sorry for people who would be responsible for this. That's just, that's not how I work. Does anybody else feel different? Anybody else feel, would feel, would you feel sorry for the people responsible for causing all this? Or more specifically, the people responsible for not preventing it. The people who could have, the people who were warned. They had congressional commissions, they had reports, they had military analysis, they had DHS reports, they had everything. Everything they needed to work at solving this problem, including people like me, I'm not making this up, including people like me trying to get their attention to solve this problem. And they did nothing. Would you feel sorry for him? For carrying the weight of the responsibility for having done nothing? Because I guarantee you, these people wouldn't be feeling any weight on their shoulders. They would just be thinking about number one, themselves. They ain't going to be feeling sorry for you. That's not going to happen. So let me know what you think about that. Now we segue into chapter 12, the final chapter. Thank goodness, because this is a difficult book to read. And it's day, it's day 365. We're one year into this. And in the early morning hours of day 365, John gets a phone call at his house. So they got a phone set up at his house now. They got lots of phones. They got phones all over the place now, which is good. And he wakes up and he gets the family together because he gets some news. Possibly good news, and that's a rare treat. So he gets the whole family together, including his, uh, his grandchild, because his oldest daughter uh, had her child, which is good. We do get some news that there's roughly about 960 people left in the town. 80% of the population is dead. So on the way to the good news, Mr. Fortune makes sure to bring us right back down again <laughs> with all the really horrible news. So thank you for that, but it's necessary. They do finally start talking about the gasoline starting to go bad, because um, obviously John is still driving around in this Edsel, and whatever fuel that they had at the beginning of this is probably starting to, number one, it's probably starting to run out. Number two, it's finally starting to go bad, because gasoline does have a shelf life to it. Uh, remember that if you ever store gasoline in your garage for your lawnmower or something like that over the winter. Uh, it's good to put some fuel stabilizer in that, just FYI. Maybe keep some fuel stabilizer on hand just in case. You never know when you might need it. But the cavalry finally arrives. Finally. Including this guy, Mr. General Wright, uh, military governor of Western North Carolina. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Dead serious. I honestly don't know. But as they describe this scene after everything that we have witnessed, the de read the description of this scene. Did anybody else feel the emotion in this scene? I mean, just the... I mean, imagine these folks 365 days into the worst nightmare of their life the vast majority of their town is dead, and people are still kind of slowly starving to death. And this, this kind of almost mythical military that you used to know finally rolls up and finally comes to town. And you see a very real representation, finally, of the outside world, the United States of America. Very emotional scene. I can only imagine. you got to imagine, finally, these people actually have some hope and they have something to look at. That's not just absolute and total misery right there in their town. There's something going on outside the town. There's help. Finally, some relief. And th in this chapter is very interesting because we finally get a real full description of what happened. This is probably, well, as far as figuring out what, what happened and exactly how things played out, this is the best chapter of the book. 
And one of the things I took away from this is that New York basically, New York City basically became a real live escape from New York type movie where it was just an absolute horror show of a place to get out of, if you could get out. No surprise there when you think about who runs the place. And they even talk about, you know, China coming in. Allegedly, China had approached the uh, the West Coast to help, and then eventually they just rolled everything up from the, uh, from the California coast all the way up to the Rockies. They just took it. They took the whole thing. And America apparently just let them do it, which is weird. And, and at the end of the book, they, current, they occupy that territory. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of a thought experiment. I mean, what would you do in that situation? I mean, aside from just let them take it, which is what America did in this scenario, as William Fortune writes it. Would you just let China take that? Because I can tell you right now, if I'm running things, there's no way in heck I let them do that. Whatever's left of our nuclear deterrent, I, I give China a call on the phone, or however the heck it is I can get a hold of them, and I'm like, look, get out of there, like, immediately. Leave immediately, and if you don't, I'm going to do to you what they did to us. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pop an EMP right over your territory, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do- use whatever else I got left to melt your country down to beaded glass. And I'm going to turn the East Coast of China into a parking lot. That's what I would have told them. Why? Because I got nothing to lose. I got 200 million dead Americans, a country that may not even survive at all. I've got no reason to believe the next 10 years is going to be anything other than watching the United States completely die off and disappear. So why not? That's my attitude. Does anybody else think different? What would you do? Would you do what America did in the book? Would you just let China take it? Or would you do what I would do? Or would you do something in between? But I can tell you there is no way on this earth I let China do what they did in this book. No way. If all I had was, if I couldn't get nuclear weapons to China, I would probably consider nuking every Chinese installation inside the continental United States just to get rid of them. I would consider it. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't stand for this. Because this, that is basically a recipe. Because you got to think 10 moves ahead. How's that going to play out 50 years into the future with China right there on your freaking doorstep? Or 100 years in the future? How's that going to play out? Not well. Every day that goes past, every day that goes by, China is going to be moving ahead of you. And you're never going to catch up because you can't. you got nothing left. So whatever advantage you have in the moment, as of the day that this catastrophe happens, that's all you got. That's the only move you've got to make. And the greater distance you can put between yourself and China, the better. You have to have some standoff capability here, and you don't if they're right in your territory. So this scenario, as played out in the book, is really, it's really, and it's not William Fortune's fault. This is just how he wrote the story. But the way the American decision-making is played out in this book is really stupid as it pertains to China, in my opinion. I would not tolerate that crap. But that's, that's uh, like I said, that's my, uh, that's my philosophy. Because again, what do you got to lose? If you go after China with, with nukes, what do you got to lose? Nothing. You got nothing to lose. Your country's probably dead anyway, so why not take out China? You know, there's actually this theory that I heard described. I don't know if this was accurate. I never actually did dig into it and figure this out. But there was allegedly some policy in place during the Cold War that if, that if we, the United States, ever got into a nuke fight with Russia, and it really got bad, and it was full-on nuclear war, that somewhere in the process we would take out China too, just because. Mainly because of the threat that they would pose if they were still completely intact after the Soviet Union and the United States got done killing each other. Because of the threat that that would pose long term to anything that's left of the United States. 
we would just take out China as well, just as just just because. That's what I heard. And frankly speaking, I'm not terribly opposed to that strategy. Oh my gosh, Roman, you're a terrible human being. How dare you? I know. I know. But don't worry. I will never be commander-in-chief of this country, so you got nothing to worry about. This country would never have the good sense to put me in charge of something like that. So it's not going to happen. But again, if it's, if it's U.S. policy from some other perspective, it might happen. You never know. But anytime, anytime anything really horrible happens like this, whether on an individual basis or on a national-type situation, whatever it was that led up to that, whatever stupid behavior it was that led up to the catastrophe, I always ask myself one question. Was it worth it? So in this scenario, as Mr. Fortune describes it, 200 million dead. Half the country is occupied by China. There really is no hope that the United States is going to do anything over the next 10, 15, 20 years other than just slowly die. And all of this because we didn't prepare, because politicians were too busy cashing checks and buying mansions. The lobbyists were busy getting rich. People were busy being stupid. National security was always put on the back burner at best. Nobody paying attention to the the macro-level national security issues that we have or possible outlier events, asymmetrical attacks like what we see in this kind of situation. All of that aggregated together, causing this kind of scenario. Was it worth it? Was being that stupid for that period of time worth all of this? Was it worth the 200 million dead? Because if it was, just keep doing what you're doing. But if it's not, perhaps there's a change that's needed. Perhaps there's several changes that are needed. So make a decision and start moving forward. But these kind of problems are not going to be solved by by planning one more trip to Disney World. That's not going to solve any of this. And then there's this little uh, kernel of wisdom from the end of the book. This um, There's a quotation here that I will read to you. It's very short. Quote, it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when, end quote. That was from General Eugene Habiger, United States Air Force, former commander-in-chief, U.S. Strategic Command, Spoken in May of 2002. That, ladies and gentlemen, as of the date of the recording of this podcast, was 21 years ago. And what has been done about it since then? Not a lot. A little bit, but not a lot. Is it still possible that this scenario could play out? Yes. 20 years of sitting on our hands. And frankly speaking, this was known going all the way back to at least the 1960s and 70s. Before I was born. So what are we doing? We're doing what we typically do, what, what America typically does. We're basically screwing around. Um, but, you know, this, this book, in summary, this book is something that reminds us all, hopefully, of uh, the necessity of paying attention. Uh, some people are going to treat this like it's a, um, oh, it's just some mythical sci-fi fantasy novel. Some kind of dystopian catastrophe novel. That'll never happen. It can't happen here, Roman. That's the common phrase. It can't happen here, Roman. None of this really bad stuff can ever happen here because this is the United States of America and we have Disney World. About the dumbest thing I ever heard anybody say. It can't happen here. Those are the dumbest words ever spoken by any man, or woman for that matter, in the history of the world as it pertains to national security and national defense. It can't happen here. It can. And according to the, uh, the general here, the, the quote that I just read to you, it will now, that, some people might say that's a pessimistic attitude. What do you mean it will happen here? It's not a matter of if, but when. That's a pessimistic attitude there, Roman. 
Well, what is it that they say about the pessimist and the optimist? What's the old joke about the pessimist and the optimist? What's the difference between a pessimist and an optimist? The answer is the pessimist has more information. That's the old joke. The idea is is that it's easy to be blissfully ignorant, to blithely walk about the country, not worried about anything. If you simply don't know anything can happen, or you don't care. That's also the old joke of the United States of America. What's the biggest problem in America? There used to be this old joke, you know, ask any, ask most, most Americans what the biggest problem is in the United States. Is it ignorance or apathy? And the response you get back is, I don't know and I don't care. Do you get the joke? Ignorance means I don't know, and apathy means I don't care. So when somebody asks an American, what's the biggest problem with the country, ignorance or apathy, and somebody responds back, I don't know and I don't care, there you go. Just a thought. No extra charge for that. But I want to thank everybody for going on this ride with me through the book One Second After. The next step, I will have one more episode of this po- this season one podcast. It's going to basically be season two expectations. If there's any questions or anything between now and the time I do that episode, I will answer them on that episode. This, ep- this, this podcast is still very early. There's a, a few people listening, but not a lot yet. I imagine we'll probably have more in season two just because of the nature of the topics involved and because of the way that I'm going to do that. That season is going to be different than this one but similar in some respect as far as the kind of things that we talk about. But between, uh, but I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a lot of the details. Well, not a lot, I guess, but some of the details about uh, Season 2 expectations and the podcast going forward. There is, again, there is bonus material to this podcast. There, right now there's uh, three bonus episodes and some other content unrelated to over on Patreon, which you can get access to if you subscribe over there. I'm still I'm still toying around with the idea of putting those bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts as a pay-for subscription, but I don't know about that yet. But thank you to everybody who subscribes over on Patreon. I really appreciate that. There will be at least one more bonus episode, a uh, number four, over there on Patreon at some point. Season one doesn't really end until season two begins, but there won't at some point there won't be regular episodes of this uh, of this podcast until season two begins. There will be irregular episodes, perhaps. Uh, but I'll talk about that in the next uh, the next episode, about Season 2 expectations and everything that happens in between now and then. But I want to thank you for listening to uh, Season 1 of this podcast and this, uh, this particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any comments or questions or thoughts, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you are listening on Spotify or elsewhere, you can go over to Patreon, and you can leave your comments and questions over there. You do have to subscribe, but good news. If all you have is comments and questions and you don't want access to the bonus material, there's a low dollar, like a $1 subscription, literally just $1, and you can you can ask questions through there as well. But I hope to see you on the next episode of this here podcast, and with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.